My collaborator today is S. Evans Doublefield, a writer, English instructor, and student of meditation. This is a conversation about reading and writing and how both can be a practice. We compare notes on profoundly transformative books and also talk about how it doesn't matter so much what you read as long as you are reading. Whether it's discovering something like a people's history of the United States and learning to question the cultural narratives that we've been given, or learning to see ourselves better through our own writing, Evan talks about how the written word can and will shape and change us. Thank you so much for making time to do an episode of Everything is Workable with me. You're so welcome. I always start off with this question that I've been playing around with lately, uh, but basically it's a very Buddhist question of yeah. what was your experience in life growing up, uh, young adulthood, who knows when, of moving from I am suffering to there is suffering? Wow. That's a really good question that I should have anticipated, <laughs> <laughs> but did not. Let's see. I am suffering. There is suffering. I feel like I did the I am suffering a really long time, longer than most. In my mid-20s, my first cousin or one of my first cousins was diagnosed with HIV. So that for me was a really devastating blow. And so there was just more personal suffering <laughs> around that. So I don't know, maybe when I first started teaching, I taught in... Um, public school in Oakland and I taught fourth and fifth grade and it was it seemed to me a regular school and in many ways it was a regular school regular students went there regular teachers taught there but people would come on to our yard to do donuts wow what people would come on to our yard to use the bathroom there were no books in the classes and sometimes there were Xerox copies of books so that students would have something to use. So I feel like that may have been like the window into me. I mean, obviously I always was cognizant of suffering going on in the world. This is horrible, this isn't fair, blah, blah, blah. But then coming into contact with that on a regular basis in my daily life, it made it seem, um, it just seemed to step into the room with me in a way that it never had before. And so I started, I think, being more aware of, you know, how horrible and unfair the world could be. For all these kids who I taught, I mean, that was their neighborhood, right? That's mm -hmm. why they went to school there kind of the extension on the question then is the the way that that realization puts you into some sort of path or practice of being of service and just being engaged with the world in a way that was bigger than and, and kind of beyond yourself you ask all these hard questions yeah i know right especially to start off the rest of them are easy <laughs> um i feel like so much of that was just what came about there was nothing intentional about any of this. I didn't intentionally decide I'm going to take on this job where I get to teach people and help them out with their education. I happened to have had a mother who was a teacher who put me into a classroom when I was 16 so I could be a teacher's assistant because my folks were always thinking about, well, you know, you always want to have a plan B. So <laughs> they wanted to make sure that no matter what I did, there was something that I could do whatever I plan to do with my life. 
And so I had exposure to that really early, like from the, the point of being aware of the world, my mother was a teacher, right? Mm-hmm. But then also I went into a classroom to do some kind of teaching support at an early age. So none of that seemed like I was being of service to anyone. It's just what I did. Mm-hmm. And so it took me maybe until I started teaching college for the second time around that I you know, really thought, I mean, I had come out of a house full of people who were activists and never really felt like an activist myself. I would go to protests and walk around with other people and be like, really guys, what are we doing here? (laughs) (laughs) We're just walking down the street and yelling, tell me how this is helping. And I felt like all of the things that they were doing were so important and meaningful. I just couldn't figure out where I fit in all of that. So then coming out of that experience and going into teaching again for the kind of second round of teaching, I was like, oh, this is how I can contribute. Because I'm sitting here in front of a group of like 30 young people and we're talking about all sorts of ideas, all sorts of things. And from that, I'm able to say, but have you ever thought about this? And really have them start thinking about some social problems, say, that they had never really considered in order to open up their minds, in order to change their minds, in order to kind of change the path that we are all walking on. Because, frankly, they're my future as well as their own future. And I want to walk into a future knowing that I had some kind of impact on how it became the way it became. And so they kind of became the way I entered into service i think more than more than anything else that's great and it's so it's interesting how common that is when i'm interviewing people for the show how many people i speak with who like basically anyone who was raised in that sort of like i i was raised by really socially aware parents and or in a really socially aware community it's like everyone had to go through their own path of figuring out why it was their path too, right? Like what their path was. Like, it's like, it doesn't matter. Even if you're raised in a socially engaged household, you still need to figure out what your purpose is. It's not like that inherently just makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. And I think after living and doing work with Reverend Angel Kira Williams, I was able to just discern because at some point she said, you know, everybody has to do this thing their own way. You don't, you don't need to do it my way. Everybody's not an activist. And I was like, okay, that takes off some pressure considering (laughs) all that you do as an activist and a spiritual leader and all of that. So I was like, okay, this is just not my way. It's not my way to go out and like throw myself in front of a truck that that's hauling lumber. It's not my way to climb a tree and name it Luna and try to <laughs> yeah. you know, protest all the deforestation that's going on. It's not my way to strap myself to the Golden Gate Bridge or to a boat that it shouldn't be. She's is hauling in porpoises as, as well as tuna. That's just not my way. I mean, that's very exciting. And I really wish I was that much of a risk taker, but I don't take risks in that way. So teaching became my way. 
That's a good way. I think it's really important. Like there's this thing that I'll see around where people are like, oh, in one person's lifetime, they'll only ever have one great teacher, which I'm like, that is, I'm calling BS on that. Because <laughs> um, like growing up, having a really good teacher, like what you were saying about sharing something that invites the students to think differently. Yeah. And have critical thought, which then is a really nice segue into the questions I've got, because we're, we're going to talk about writing and your experience as a writer, but also about reading and, and books and the influence that books have on yeah. cultures and societies, because they influence people and people make up cultures and societies. Woo. Okay. <laughs> so for you, what have been some of the most influential books in your life? This is always a difficult question, because what does that mean? Like, what kind of influence are we talking about here? Okay. I feel like bad books can be influential too. That is a very, I like that. Go, can, do you want to go in that direction? No, because I, I can't think of any bad books <laughs> that influenced me. I, um, I can say for myself that um, reading really bad young adult fiction has really driven me to write better young adult fiction. All right. There you go. There's an example. That's good. The young adult fiction that I read, that I remember, it was always really dark. And I think that's why I like writing things that are really depressing, <laughs> that have kind of depressing storylines at some point. And people just, it just doesn't work out for the characters. It's just too bad. That kind of writing influenced me in, in that way. So like, I Know What You Did Last Summer was a popular book when I was a young person. I did not know that that was a book before it was a movie. What? Oh, yeah. It was, I think I read it twice. It was so spooky to me at the time. Uh-huh. So I loved books like that. But as an older person growing up, coming through life as I did, the influential book to me, the book that I felt really changed my life was A People's History of the United States, which is not a book of fiction. Uh-huh. We're open to all kinds. That's good. Yeah. For a while, I was, uh, when I was going to grad school, first time around, I was working with this um, Native American man who, I suppose, in the context of things, he, people would have called him Mexican. And he's like, nope, that's not right. I'm Native American. So that's what he held on to. And he read all of these kind of political books about ethnicity and history and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he got me into reading books like that. And so I ended up reading A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, which completely changed my view of what history was because it wasn't quote unquote normal. Mm. Um, And I feel like history has been cleansed and normalized. It's so boring. (laughs) in high school the things that we read I was like this is the how is really this is what they did in the 1800s and the 1700s (laughs) how did they get through it I could barely get through this class it was just awful but then when I read that book I was like okay now this is a story this is what I'm talking about Uh you know so a lot of what Howard Zinn goes over are the peoples who weren't addressed in all of the historical stories that we've heard. So, like most of them. <laughs> yeah, like most people. So, so when McKinley decided to um, 
for instance, when there was a war in the Philippines and McKinley was president, he was trying to decide whether or not the Filipinos should be free because they were brown people. And I was just like, dag, seriously? No one ever told me this. And who ever heard of McKinley? (laughs) You know? So getting the information that that book provided helped me, one, be more interested in my own, in, in the history of the United States and in in history itself. And I began to see history as being something that, what's the famous quote that people usually say about history? Those who don't know it are doomed to repeat it. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm like, really, there are plenty of people right now who know what history has gone down in this country and they are damn sure going to repeat it. But I think that the fact of the matter is that history is important to know because it tells us how we got to where we are and mm-hmm. why we're there. And so we have a real perspective on what happened and why things are the way they are. It just kind of informs us in that way, which I think is, is important to know. Things just didn't appear this way. Yeah, I, I find it very irritating when people say, oh, that's in the past, and by people, I mean usually white people, say, that's in the past, why don't you let it go? As if, just looking at your own human life, things that happened in your past don't impact you now, later on, right, as you grow up and get older. And so, and, and if you look at, especially a country like the United States, which is sort of in its awkward, terrible teenage stage, apparently, right now, in the big scheme of like the global <laughs> global politics and where other countries are and yeah that that uh, that getting you know who who gets to write down that's the other quote about history is that it's written by the victors right so that's the perspective you get right so I, i'm canadian and as a canadian i got a very different way of being taught whiteness than americans amazingly it is significantly different actually the way that the story goes because of the formation of the two countries is quite different and so for me when i moving to the states and i was like okay i want to engage in like anti-racist work and what do i need to know i read uh the warmth of other suns oh yeah yeah that was i was like whoa First of all, I didn't even know about this migration from the South. I didn't know that was a thing. Mm. I wasn't taught that up in Canada. Why would we be taught that up in Canada? (laughs) Girl, we weren't taught that here in the United States. Yeah. (laughs) Good point. Yeah, we weren't. Um, So what are, in the teaching that you do, what are some of the books that you have found most influential for your students? Well, I just read with... um, these are college students. Mm-hmm. We just read Wild by Cheryl Miss Fabulous Strade in this last spring, which I was a little hesitant about only because it's book club fiction and it has this this bell that runs after it shouting, Chicklet, chicklet. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So one of the first things I told my students was, for some reason, this is called Chicklet because it's written by a woman and it's about a woman's journey. But I feel like that downgrades it from being something that's not important. And so I, when I announced that we were reading it, I kind of introduced the book to them as, you know, I don't know why it's called that. 
this is why it's important. It's a woman's journey. It's about the things that she experiences, yada, yada, yada. For some reason, I had a class with mostly guys, which is so unusual for me. Usually, <laughs> most of the class, most of the students in my classes is just English composition are, are women. And they were really into it. Awesome. They were really into her book. I think just because she goes through so many hard things. And I imagine, I did not ask, you know, many of them have witnessed or been a part of some of those hard things. And so her life seemed real to them. And one of the things that we ended up talking about, one of the things that I put on the table for us to talk about was the fact of being a woman who goes out into the world and does this thing that women typically don't do, which is hike alone on the Pacific Crest Trail. And so I asked, I was like, so what would it be like for someone who is not a white, straight woman to hike this trail? What do you think their experience would be like? What do you think it would be like to be a man? doing the things that she did. Do you think as many people would have helped her out? What if she was a black woman? Mm -hmm. Do you think as many people would have helped her out? So it kind of made them think differently, again, about Cheryl Strayed's situation, the things that she experienced, the things that they might have experienced. Whatever your question was, that's the answer. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. I think as well, so memoir, I, this has been for me a year of reading a lot of memoirs mm-hmm. because I read The Art of Memoir by Mary Carr and then I was like, all right, great. She has a giant reading list at the end of this book. Oh God. Damn you, Mary Carr. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I had actually read Wild previous to this year anyway. And, and it's interesting because in comparing memoirs and, and it's so, what's fascinating about memoir is the best ones are relatable, but specific. Mm-hmm. And that's so interesting in, in like what you're saying. And when I read Wild, that was exactly what I thought. I was like, she talks, like people say to her like, oh, you know, everyone's helping you out and your experience has been so good and everyone's been so friendly other than like those slightly dodgy guys they were horrible or horrible where it's like every woman reading that book is like yeah know what that's yeah. like. yep <laughs> then yeah same thing i would say about hunger you know i am a slim person mm-hmm. i have always been slim my entire life mm-hmm. but reading hunger by roxanne gay was still again from that plate place of being a woman of being policed of being in a body that is being policed mm-hmm. for whatever reason it's like it's specific but relatable yeah, absolutely. And, and being able to also draw those parallels, parallels of like, how is this different if you have a different embodiment? Right. So there's so many different genres for influential books. And, and mm-hmm. there's, there's these lists that go around on the interwebs that kind of yeah. bother me. These, you have to read this. And if you haven't read this, then you're failing as a human or a reader or something. What do you think of those kinds of lists? I don't know really what are on those lists but whenever I think of the books that one has to read I think of the literary canon so I think of everything from like Wuthering Heights and Middlemarch to Hamlet and John Donne and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight 
and all sorts of things that I was forced to read in undergrad <laughs> that I just couldn't connect to. And some of that had to do with being young and not ever quite understanding how I was supposed to get into the language of something that was written, you know, a couple hundred years before by people who spoke English so differently than I, <laughs> that I, I had to get a dictionary out just to like really understand what one line meant. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think of when I think about the list of books that I'm supposed to read. And I have read very few of those books, although some of them I find fabulous. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I always wonder about books from, I don't know, the 20th century that should be on that list that mm-hmm. aren't. And the literary canon covers mostly white men. Yeah. There are a few white women in there, but not that many. So I'm just like, well, what about Faulkner? I don't think he's on that list. <laughs> like, wouldn't he qualify? Um, Tony Morrison isn't on that list. Tony there... Morrison's not on that list? No. So the literary canon is pretty old and it's been needing an update for a while. Mm-hmm. So I'm just not so into lists. I, I feel like I'm really happy if people are reading, frankly. I'm yes. really happy if people are reading because that seems to not go around so much these days. People do a lot of watching, which is great, but reading takes a different kind of focus and attention and thoughtfulness than watching. So I can only recommend reading, period. Read a comic book. (laughs) That would be fabulous. But mostly read something because you're interested in the subject and it turns you on. This is the thing I always tell my students who are interested in being better writers, because there's a lot of writing that people do, but a lot of the way folks seem to write, at least those folks who are who come through through my English class, they many of them seem to do things like they make up words. I'm like, that's not a word. You can't use it that way. <laughs> irregardless is not a word. <laughs> oh, worse than irregardless. Things that I'm like, that's really not a word. No one is going to understand what you're talking about. The thing is, we write in order to communicate with other people. So if you're not able to communicate with someone else, there's, there's no point. And I think as an educator, reading really helps with that. So just read something, read anything, read a lot though, read all the time, read as much as you can. I don't care if it's from the literary canon. I don't care whose list it's from. If it's something that really is meaningful to you, you'll get something out of it. So that's probably a really broad (laughs) response to that question, but it's kind of how it just works for me because the people who are meaningful to me aren't on that list. And they may never be on that list. So I can't, I can't advocate for a list. I just have to advocate for do the thing that you love. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's like what you were saying about a people's history of the United States, right? Like who gets to make the lists and, and then who ends up on it? And what are you not hearing? What stories are you not getting? Um, who would you put on your own list? Yeah. Oh, man. I have a tendency to read books by black writers. And part of that 
is probably obvious, right? <laughs> but I think part of it is, and I realized this, this just recently because I finished reading The Cooking Gene by Michael Twitty, which was a fabulous book that combined personal history personal history, meaning the immediate history in my own life, in my Mm -hmm. own family, as well as past personal history. So his historical lineage, Mm -hmm. as well as food and cooking, as well as culture. So he combines all of these things in this book. And as I was reading it, I was like, "Ah, something about history and the kind of mystery that surrounds the history of Black people in this country is part of the reason why I always read those books. It's like I'm trying to find an answer to something that I know I'm probably never going to find an answer to. And Mm -hmm. so those books seem to hold that question or that information or that unanswered question. So that's why I always read those books. So the books on my list would definitely include work by Edward P. Jones, who wrote a book called The Known World, which is amazing. I'm taking notes here. <laughs> okay. Um, it, would include, it would include Dante's Inferno as translated by John, I think I'm saying his last name right, Giardi. It's a fabulous translation of Dante's Inferno, which is a very dark book, but the metaphors are deep and long, and I just love that book. I freaking love that book. <laughs> and I don't know if Dante's on the literary canon list, but he's the kind of guy he might be. Um, there's Beloved, of course, by Toni Morrison. At one time or another, Light in August would have been on that list, but I recently read Light in August, and I was like, how did I, how did I read <laughs> I can't I can't even begin to tell you on on a craft level after having read many more books and written many stories and tried to write and in the midst of trying to write a book I was like no I can't William Faulkner dude <laughs> there's some things that what were you thinking <laughs> so Probably not that. Um, I love Mary Carr. Mary Carr's um, The Liars Club would probably mm. be on that list. Really amazing book. Nikki Finney's Head Off and Split, which is a book of poetry, which is terrific. So obviously, People's History of the United States, mm-hmm. that would be on the list. There's just bunches of them. I've always thought as well, it, it's almost like you need to get lists depending on what the focus is, right? Like, I'm like, so I do my, at the end of every year, I do my like review of, of all the books that I read. These are like five of the best ones. And I try to do actually five in two different genres. And so this year is probably going to be five memoir and five nonfiction, maybe five fiction, because memoir is nonfiction. It's hard to say. It's difficult to pick. But yeah, that that a lot of the time the lists are, they are, they're just that sort of literary canon, that style. 
and not looking at like, okay, well, what is it that you want to open up about and understand better and get into deeper? Because yeah, then yeah. I was like, then I've got lots of different lists and, and, and they're shorter then, right? You know, I'm like, here's just three books. If you want to understand Dharma, here's three books. If you want to understand race in America, here's probably four books actually for that one. So, so reading obviously has a really huge impact in our lives, but yeah. what has been your experience of how writing has changed you? Good question. Um, I think about this a lot, but probably not, probably in an indirect way. I think about how the fact of practicing anything for a long time, and especially something that we find compelling, is probably a huge part of our path in life because that's where we're going to find most of the lessons for ourselves in one way or another, whether that be through people we know, people we encounter, or basically what the thing that we're doing is, um, is you know, driving us to, to complete and look at in ourselves. So in terms of writing, I feel like some of my deepest spiritual moments have been because I've been writing, you know, off the cushion, not meditating spirituality and being able to just tap into things that I had not anticipated finding. I think one of those, one moment that I'm willing to talk about actually was before I started meditating seriously. And I was trying to write a story that I have not yet written and has changed over the years into several other things. But I was, as I was trying to write it in this form, I remember kind of losing my, I want to say losing myself isn't quite the word, Mm -hmm. but it's as if I was writing and instead of having the experience of, oh, maybe he should do this. I'll say this maybe. It was like, I wasn't there anymore. I was viewing the story as if it was a movie running in front of me and somehow I was writing. And I have no idea what the writing was. I didn't have any idea about what words were coming out until after I had gone through that experience and looked at the page. So there are things like that. But I also feel like writing has tapped into a greater awareness of myself. So I'm writing this book now, this love story. And some of what I'm discovering as I try to edit it or as I go through the process of beginning a third draft and looking at my other drafts are intuitive ideas about what needs to change, but realizing that what I'm looking at is a part of some bad habit that I have and I can't articulate what that bad habit is. I know what it feels like though. And so when I go through and read what I've written, I'm like, there's that bad habit again. It feels really stodgy and repetitive and unnecessary. And so cutting it out of my writing feels like I'm also beginning to eliminate it out of my own psyche. That's amazing. 
writing. It is a practice. It is definitely a practice. It is a practice. Um, so to finish off, I always just invite guests to offer anything that they would like to leave for listeners. And in this case, think about the advice you would have given to your younger self if you could go back. You just come up with the deep ones. <laughs> um, what would I, what advice I would give to my younger self probably has nothing to do with writing. Well, maybe it does. I would just say, keep doing it. Do it every day. Get as involved as you possibly can in it. Because I feel like for me, there, there's a lot of stuff wrapped up in writing, I think, which references the answer I just gave. It's more than just having people read what you write. And it's more than just telling stories that might amuse people or, or interest them or even change them because there's something really, I think, inherently connected to the things that compel us forward with our own personal and spiritual growth. So I would really tell my younger self those things, like keep doing it, just keep doing it, <laughs> figure it out. Make sure you practice. Make sure you begin to understand the craft of it. I had a friend who told me a long time ago, he's like, writing is a skill like everything else. And, and of course I said, no, it isn't. Some people have more talent and they can be better writers than people who don't. <laughs> but at an older age, I think, <laughs> right you know i think there's a certain amount of whatever you do that has a certain amount of talent and intuition that goes with it but then there's a large amount that's really about knowing grammar and being able to craft something and being able to kind of see the intricacies of something because you can make the thing that you thought was going to be so great when you did that rough draft that much better or want to read it. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. In addition to writing her own novel, S. Evans Stubblefield supports other fiction writers in developing their work. To find out more about Evans' services as a writing coach, visit writingtheuntoldstory.com. I'm incredibly grateful to my many patrons, without whom I could not make my practice the focus of my time and attention. Immense appreciation to Gretchen Wagner, Julian and Shannon Hatch, Winita Budgen, Margaret Prescott, Val Delane, Perry Pugh, Annika, Jennifer Harkness, Katie Bredbeck, Laura Mulkern, Michelle Puckett, Sierra Love, and Chrissy Bird. Patrons help me to cover the cost of producing this podcast, but also make it possible for me to do outreach for my chaplaincy, buy art supplies, and have focus time for writing. Visit CaitlinSCHatch.com to see the breadth of my work in the world. The original theme song for this podcast was created by award-winning singer-songwriter Tajai Moore of Moore Music. 